podcast for women in STEM and education. I am Dr. Richa Chandra. And I am Dr. Amber Miller. And I am Liliana Hildebrun. We are so excited to be joined today by our Spitfire digital marketing intern, aka one of the wisest girls, to co-host this episode with us, especially since she is an industrial engineering student. And in today's episode, we talk with engineering professor, Dr. Ava Lonslot, in our episode titled, The Concrete Details of PhD Stress. But before we get into that, Richa and Liliana, how are you dressed for success today? So today I watched Church from my laptop and I decided I'm still dressed up. So I'm wearing a black nice sweater, a pink fuchsia polka dot top, and I'm put on makeup this morning. Dr. Richa, how did you dress for success? So I think that imitation is the best form of flattery. And I tried to style my hair like Dr. Lonsot's, you know, Instagram pictures and the pictures she sent us with a ponytail. And it was ponytails were on my mind because just a couple of days ago, we've learned that um, the military, the Air Force are relaxing their their rules about women wearing um, their hair in ponytails, which has been like a huge um, change from, you know, the strict buns that everybody had to wear before. Um, and it's definitely been very empowering for, for Black women who, you know, want to have that, that soldier identity, but also have, you know, the ability to wear their hair in a way that's more aligned with their, their culture and their, you know, ethnic roots. So, um, you know, and that's been a big topic for us, right? Like the beauty and brains and, you know, how we dress and that's an expression that, you know, that's for women. So that's the mood I'm in. Dr. Miller, how are you dressed for success? I love it. Well, I too was channeling Dr. Lonsop, but in a different way. I dug back in my closet to, I don't even want to think about how many years ago, to PhD student time to pull out my t-shirt that says born smart, but damaged during PhD studies. Um, <laughs> because like, let's be honest, we all get a little damaged during our PhD studies. Um, and so that was my inspiration for getting dressed for success today. And with that, we are so excited to hear from Dr. Lonsop this international engineer who is also focused on kind of creating some transparency in the PhD process. We're so excited to talk to you today. You're our first international guest, and it seems like you're literally everywhere, Belgium, uh, Ecuador, the Netherlands, um, from what I'm hearing, you're really a global woman, in our opinion. So please tell us uh, about your career path through all these different locales. Sure. So thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'll have to start from the very beginning. So I was born and raised in Belgium, and that's where I did my undergraduate and first master's. And then I got a scholarship to go to a second master's in the United States. And then I continued on doing my uh, PhD in the Netherlands. And at the end of my PhD, I, um, I had met my husband during my master's in the United States, and he is originally from Ecuador. And of course, uh, we were wondering where to go and where we would both find jobs. And we got an opportunity in Ecuador. So we moved to Ecuador, but I kept a part-time position in the Netherlands. And I've been keeping that combination of two positions ever since then, so since 2013. That's so much. And, I, and you're tenured in the Netherlands too, right? Yes, yes, yes. At both universities. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so different than, I mean, I guess what I've seen, and maybe it's it's not that common anyway, um, for people to have that those kinds of, uh, you know, 
two positions, one part-time tenured, like how, how do you, um, what are your expectations from like your tenured position versus um, in Ecuador? So my position in Ecuador is it's a research professorship. So in Ecuador, most professors teach a lot as in four courses per semester. Um, so it's really, really focused on teaching. In my case, because of the, the research that I do, I uh, went into a research path and I teach one course per semester. And now with COVID, I've been doing a bit more teaching, but generally I, I get a, a lower teaching load than uh, most of my colleagues. And then in the Netherlands, normally I am there during the summers. So I balanced it out by working at distance and... Uh, under normal circumstances, when one can travel without any fears, I am in the Netherlands during what would be the summer semester in, um, so from mid-May to mid-July. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm a chemist, uh, uh, Amber is a biologist, and, and so we would have a, a good understanding of, you know, civil engineering, which, you know, and then you shifted to structural engineering. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So structural engineering really is a sub part of civil engineering. Civil engineering is very broad. Anything that is uh, protection against flooding, which in the Netherlands, of course, is very important and becomes even more important now as sea levels rise. Um, but I went into the path of structures. So structural engineering is anything that is the design or the uh, not designed as in the architectural way, but the structural design of buildings and bridges. And my specialization really is bridges. Um, and Lilian, I think you had read something um, about Dr. Lansot's uh, extracurricular interests, right? Yeah, I am actually musically inclined too. I have a flute. I played in my school's band. I noticed you played the cello on your website and we're in other musical projects. Can you tell me about if and how it's impacted your musical career has impacted your STEM career? I think I've always seen music as a way to disconnect from the science and the school and everything. And when I was a child, it was really my safe space because I I, uh, I, I didn't like school, but the, the music school was my safe space and I spent a lot of time there. But over the years, as I've been moving to different countries, I've, I've seen that music has been my way of connecting with people and finding friends and um, finding friends outside of my you know, group of colleagues as, as a foreigner, it's, it's often more difficult, especially as you get a bit older to, to really meet new people. And for me, playing music has been my way of connecting with people and connecting to the place where I am. Do you think the balance, does that, do you feel like it helps your productivity right on the STEM side, being able to have this outlet to kind of like you said, detach a little bit from your work life, but but then mm -hmm. like circle back? I think it does. I, I think also because it requires so much concentration and focus, you cannot, you know, play anything while being thinking of the laundry that still needs to be done and the dishes that need to be washed and all of that. Then those 25 emails that have popped up in the last hour and whatever, it's driving <laughs> your mind crazy. Uh, so I, I just do feel that it helps me focus and and really detach yes but 2020 has not been really the year for detaching it's just <laughs> been everything 
Everything. Yeah. I can, I mean, I can only imagine. And then with the challenges of trap, like not being able to travel when part of your responsibility is, is to travel. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that that just adds, you know, additional, additional stress. Um, And so, so we're also curious because I know a big part of what, um, how we learned about you, right, is through your your blog and your podcast, PhD Talk. So I'm curious as to what inspired you to start, right, these ventures. I started my blog in 2010. So it was at the end of the first year of my PhD. Uh, feels like a lifetime ago now that I talk about it and at that time I had small blogs I had uh, a blog about my adventures as a as a, an exchange student or uh, during my years in Atlanta and then I had uh, a blog before that on MySpace <laughs> so <laughs> I had been blogging for quite a while but it was always just a few posts and then I got bored with it and let it die and with this blog, I also started, but for some reason, I I found that it it helped me connect to other PhD students and um, sharing through the blog and on Twitter what we were learning and the things that were working or were not working in the laboratory. Having that space to to reflect and as well reflect on how I worked and uh, seemed to you know work quite well and I've been keeping it ever since and the podcast I started um, in December so that's quite new. And it sounds like a little bit of I think why we started you know the podcast in terms of just sharing stories and and I don't know commiseries (laughs) maybe not the best word but you know just I think sometimes knowing that other people are dealing with similar situations and it helps you feel better right to hear what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So was there like a specific stressor or just um, like thing that that you guys were all dealing with um, as an engineering PhD student right that really maybe prompted some of that? I think for us, big part, and that is uh, common in, in many STEM PhDs, is there's a lot of experimental work going on. So there's a lot of data and uh, there's experiments that are setups that may not work in the beginning. And you have, you don't, ha- you don't read other people, like in, in a research paper, people don't talk about it. They just report their setup and the results and as if everything went flawlessly. And uh, I, I found that I, I like having my blog to, you know, have a, a bit behind the scenes, showing pictures of how we developed everything, um, things that didn't work, to report that somewhere as well. And the other part of it is as well, when you generate all that data, how do you deal with it in a, um, like how do you program routines to deal with that in a, in a faster way so you don't have to uh, analyze every experiment in the same way uh, in Excel, spending hours and hours repeating the same thing. So really those processes that lie behind, I also found that people typically don't report that just show the plots and not the thinking that went behind that, those choices. So I, I found that my, my blog and having these, communi- these um, conversations was a, a good way of, of exchanging ideas. Uh, I have a follow-up question. What programs do you guys use to analyze your data? Um, mostly MATLAB. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I, I use that. I have to use that. I have to start learning that in my, uh, my math class and I had to take a coding class last semester and we mm-hmm. use MATPLOTLAB and 
it's really cool to see that I'm actually learning stuff that is going to pay off. Yeah. Yeah. Worldwide. So on kind of the programming stuff, mm-hmm. I am an industrial engineering major. I particularly want to work in the healthcare systems, but I'm also really interested about just the general world because I didn't hear about industrial systems engineering until I got to my school. So, mm-hmm. and I checked on your blog and I noticed you had this book about load testing. How does that work? Yeah, so load testing is, um, what I talk about is bridge load testing. So as I mentioned before, most of the work I do is related to bridges. Um, Some of it's related to buildings, but most of the focus of my research is really on bridges. And we have a lot of bridges that are getting older. Uh, In the Netherlands, there's bridges that were built, a lot of bridges that were built after the Second World War. And in the United States, there's bridges that were built in the 1930s uh, to to combat the the depression. And then there's also a set of bridges that were built in the 60s as well. And all these bridges are getting older. So they, and at the same time, the trucks that pass these bridges are getting heavier and longer and bigger. As you may have noticed that the trucks from the 1960s are not the trucks of today. So often people are wondering if these bridges are still safe and, I could go on a whole tangent here on how we define safe, but I'll just stay with the word safe as uh, as a general word here. And one way of looking at the safety of these bridges is recalculating them. But in some cases, we don't have all the tools to recalculate them. We may not have the information we need, so we may not have the plans of the bridges, so we may not know much about it, or we... Um, may really have doubts on the way the bridge in itself works. And one of the things that we can do then is if all else fails, we have to go and test the bridge. And then what we do is we do a load test and there's two ways of doing it. One way is really the the simplest way and that is putting the weight that represents um, the heaviest truck that can pass on it plus a margin of safety and see if the bridge doesn't collapse in the simplest way that I can explain it. And doesn't collapse as well, like the worst case scenario. What we want is it not to deflect too much, not to crack too much. Um, So that's one way of doing it. And the other way of doing it is with slightly lower loading, but then really instrumenting the bridge to see how it behaves, how it distributes the load throughout its system. And then we can better understand how the bridge behaves and then we can better calculate the bridge. So how often does the bridge break? Uh, I haven't seen any, I haven't had any tests that I've been involved with in which the bridge broke. Um, But in the past, people were using low testing before we had all these computational tools to really show this bridge works. And then uh, legend has it that the engineer who designed the bridge had to stand under the bridge while they were testing it. And in one case, I did read, and that's a 19th century story, I did read that they had placed a lot of bags of sand on the bridge. And they said, oh, okay, the bridge is fine. And they went to have lunch. And they left to load all these bags of sand on the bridge and it started to rain. So the sand started to, you know, soak in all that water. And of course, there's much more weight on the bridge then. And then it did collapse. Um, but we've gone a long way since the 19th century, luckily. 
of okay. your um, one of your episodes, um, PhD talk, where you're talking about a day in the life, and I felt like, oh, I'm starting to understand what it's like to be you and and your um, your co-host, who's a male PhD student, right? And mm-hmm. then I was just like, you know, listening to you, your whole life, and I was like, okay, I can relate to like all the mom stuff, and like you know, and the contrast with your your co-host, who's you know, um, I guess engaged, and you know, has like mm-hmm. a very different life, and it just seemed yes. like, oh you're engineering your whole life, you know, so organized and, you know, like calculating all your time and stuff. Um, and you talked about how at Ecuador, you know, there aren't a lot of academics, not a lot of, um, you know, universities where there, there is an engineering program. So I thought that was also kind of fascinating mm-hmm. and kind of related to that. I was wondering, um, you know, based on your experiences in the United States and Europe and now South America, um, how do you think the gender gap is in these different countries for women? Um, you know, do you think that women are faring equally in all these different places? And one thing that we often come back to, and I have family in Europe, and I feel like PhDs, at least from, you know, that perspective are treated differently with a little more respect um, in Europe. Do you think that American PhDs need to leave the U.S.? Well, if I look at the numbers, for example, of in the Netherlands, the percentage of women full professors that I think it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put my hand in the fire for the number, but I think it's somewhere around 12%. So it is still a very skewed uh, situation. The same here in, in Ecuador. Um, when I started, I was the uh, only um, female professor in the civil engineering department and I I knew in the beginning the students were a little bit like what was this Uh, and um, in the whole engineering school when I started there were only four or five women so it was quite limited but by now we have had uh, much more younger um, female academics joining us. So it's, it's, it's quickly ticking up. I would say in the Netherlands as well, in our research group, concrete is not really something that you, that, that, that really like construction industry and, and concrete structures may not be something that a, a lot of women are drawn to, but by now our, our research group in the Netherlands is also fully balanced. So I've seen a lot of positive um, changes, um, but still at the top and at the full professor level, there is still quite a gap too. And I think that's a, an international issue. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that in engineering in general. I think that out of the STEM fields that there are less women, um, you know, except for, so I've talked to some women in India and they're shocked coming to the United States at how few women are in engineering mm-hmm. in the United States. So it's, I mean, it's it's interesting, like how it can be different yet, you know, there's there's that. How did you feel like, um, so I know you have a, a daughter, um, you know, like, and then you, I don't know if you were in your tenure track process when you had her, like, did you feel supported by your institution? Um, for my position in Ecuador, I... Um, I, I was in the process of getting the appointment for full research professor, um, and I got that while I was pregnant. So I, I haven't really seen how having her impact the tenure track here. And then in the Netherlands, I did, um, I, I got tenure there when she was one and a half. Uh, and I, I don't think it, like, 
the university was really supportive as well. Usually I go there during the summers to, uh, to, to do experimental work. And I, uh, she was born late July and I work mid May to mid July uh, in the Netherlands. So I, I did tell them, I think I may not be the most coordinated now to be in the lab or to be climbing on ladders and everything this summer. So that I, I discussed it in advance and I, uh, could shift to work on another project so I was not needed in the lab that summer. So it, I've, I've been very supported by my colleagues. Um, in terms of the universities themselves, I think it's a lot of it is knowing the rules and regulations. And uh, here in Ecuador, in um, I got some information from human resources, but then I had some doubts still. And I was like, okay, I'll just look up the law myself and, and see what it says. And, and I said, okay, I see this. So let's do this and this, and they we're fine with it. But I had to be a little bit proactive there. And in the Netherlands, I, I remember I was going for my summer stay while my daughter was still very young. And I, I said, well, I, uh, I was nursing her still at the time and I, I was going to be separated from her for many months, well, for many weeks, uh, a bit over a month that year. And I said, well, I will need a place to pump during the day. And I asked, so where is it? And I asked that in advance and said, oh, oh our faculty actually doesn't have. Um, and then my full professor, head of the, the department at that time said, well, let me look into that. Let me, let me see what can be done. And then actually by asking about this day they, they arranged the room and by the time I got there I was seeing many other new moms who were using it as well so I think just being proactive and asking has has helped me to get what I needed as support. So awesome that's so awesome and so so when you switched from like you did your master's in the U.S. and then you went and did your PhD in in the Netherlands right mm -hmm. um, so was there a lot of differences between like the processes or, or is it still very is it very similar? I think the so the the PhD in the Netherlands is a bit different from the United States. Uh, when I did my PhD in the Netherlands, there was no coursework, so it's fully research focused with maximum. 20% of your time to devote to teaching. So more uh, being guest lecturer in some of the, of, of the courses or grading. Um, so it, it was more research oriented than perhaps uh, in, in the United States where you have the research plus the coursework. So I think that that was the main difference with what I, what I had seen and what I saw my husband doing at the time and what I was doing in the Netherlands. Which one did you find that you liked more? So in the Netherlands, originally, the PhD students got a lot of freedom. Now there's a little bit more rules and uh, uh, things to, to keep them on track. Um, it, in the Netherlands, the, the PhD was often compared to, you know, throw them in the water and, and see if they sink or swim. And I personally liked getting that freedom and I... I had very limited meetings with my supervisor. I was just having a time of my life in the lab and, and, and doing what I felt like doing and following my nose and sometimes getting stuck in a, in a side quest that perhaps with, uh, being reined in a little bit more wouldn't have happened. But I do think that helped me become a more independent researcher because then when I went to Ecuador, I knew that here I would be the only one in my field and I would have to start my research 
the, the research that I'm doing here on my own from scratch with support from nobody. So I think that did help me with doing the PhD in the Netherlands. Do you have any tips on being able to afford that type of education? So I know uh, for some students, that's like one of the biggest things. That's, uh, I'd like to get a PhD and affordability is certainly one of my biggest, eh, well, I won't I sort of situations. Sure. Yes, in the Netherlands, actually, the PhD students are considered university staff. So they, um, it does mean that once you are a PI, the, the budget that you need to foresee for a PhD student gets, large because it's not just their salary it's the overhead and of course um it, it becomes quite a lot um but on the other hand if you are a phd student in the netherlands in most cases there are some scholarships as well but in most cases a phd student in the netherlands is considered university staff so they get uh, a decent salary comparable to a junior engineering industry they pay taxes, they uh, are saving for retirement funding, they have social security and all of that. So from that perspective, I, I do think it's less of an issue, the financial aspect, than it would be when you have to apply for a scholarship or pay part of it yourself. That sounds common to the experience in the in the U.S. Um, you know, since we also have to teach during our um, graduate studies, and it's kind of I don't know. I feel like um, pretty cheap labor <laughs> sometimes, right? For your PI, I mean, I know it's expensive from the PI perspective, which is what you have now, right? I mean, applying for grant yes. funding to afford to have all those students in your, your lab. But I, I do remember as a graduate student feeling like, you know, an indentured servant of <laughs> sorts. You know. I think at the end of the day, I think it's a fairer system in the Netherlands. I mean, otherwise the gap with your peers who are being able to start buying a house and all of that is, there's such a gap. And in the Netherlands, I, I have seen colleagues who uh, bought a house or a, an apartment during their PhD and just had a life similar to what somebody in junior in industry would be having. For sure, when I was a, a, a grad student and even a postdoc, we didn't have, like, we could put our own money into retirement, but we were not part of, like, the university retirement system or any of those things. So mm -hmm. that in itself sounds better than what kind of we, or what, at least where I was, what I, what I kind of had the opportunity to, to pursue for that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So I have another random, I feel like, and it's interesting because I was thinking about it today, you know, just as we're excited about talking with you. But so how much do you feel that the PhD process is like a load test, <laughs> stress <laughs> test, right? For, for your, for your, as a person, right? Compared to, to your, your load test for, for engineering. Well, certainly it is a, <laughs> a stress test, a load test. And I, I think that's also common to, to everybody's speech, the experience. At some point, you're going to doubt yourself. At some point, you're going to want to either cry or get really angry. Um, and and it's the, since we do a lot of, of work in the laboratory, our, our technician, he says, well, I've seen everybody cry here, so no worries. And or everybody either cries or gets super angry at some point. So it's 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 part of the process, and it's uh, um, because it's such a long project. It's it's not something that at any other point in your life you you would be doing. So it's it's uh, a unique endeavor, but also can be really challenging at times. 
love how much light you're shedding on the whole PhD experience through through everything that you're doing on your blog and, and your um, new podcast. So we wish you the best of luck with all of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I think that Liliana, you got so much from that, right? Being a an engineering student. Uh, it's certainly not the field that I intend to go into, but it's it's very just cool seeing like what's out there. Learning that she uses MATLAB, I'm kind of using, well, I'm doing like matplotlib stuff in my math class. And it was just made me feel very secure. Like, oh, okay, like this stuff is going to last me that long. And part of my end goal is to get a PhD. And part of that's just like, okay, like knowing what more it's like. And I kind of want, it makes me want to go international, but we'll see how life plans work with that. Yeah. I think it's a cool, I think like, I don't know, I, I debated on going abroad for my master's program, just like, cause I knew it's a limited time kind of thing, you know, like there's a, just, you're going to do a project, you'll be there for a few years and then you can return, you know, or move someplace else. So I did think about, obviously it didn't happen, but I did, I did think about it. So I think, you know, especially from what it sounds like, you'll, if you go to the Netherlands, you'll have a little bit leg up versus what you would get pay wise, right? Compensation wise in, in the U.S. So I'm not sure. Um, it definitely would be worth lurking into for like if it's the same in other places too, or if it's more similar to what the compensation is like here, I think. Luckily with the plan I intend on going is I'll be, you know, if all goes well and I can, I can like keep up with school and stuff, I'll be on a three plus two fast track with uh, getting a master's degree in public health with occupational safety. So that'll be fun. What did y'all think? Cause this is definitely not your, not what the wisest women typically see. We are usually getting like NASA and biologists and chemists, very like small microscientists. What do y'all, how'd y'all see that? So I actually felt like I related most to her just because of the whole PhD experience. I feel like even though our research topics were different, like that, that part, I was like, you know, the, the whole path, the, the research, the, you know, like that, that part felt very actually kind of like a common denominator um, compared to the physicians that we've had or, um, you know, uh, Janelle, who's an aerospace engineer, you know, but um, had like a kind of a different path since she didn't do the PhD and, you know, went right into um, uh, JPL, for example. I don't know. What do you think, Amber? Yeah, I agree. I mean, when she was talking about kind of why she started the podcast and and just those experiences you go through. I mean, getting a PhD is not for everyone. Like you have to be thick skinned. You have to be okay with like your experiments not working like most of the time. And as a, as a grad student, I think it's hard. And even as a, if you continue on to postdoctoral training, I think it's just challenging because you're in this learning stage. And so for me, a big part of the challenge with the PhD was, is this not working because I don't know what I'm doing because I'm a new grad student and I'm learning this, or is this not working because like, this is never going to work, right? Like some of those experiments you're doing is you're trying to develop new techniques to do things and new avenues of research. And it's this really fine line between like, is this ever going to work? Or is this just me not being able to figure it out? And how much time do you invest on those, on those projects with, with just continual negative, you know, negative data or negative responses, right? So it's, you know, the whole, that whole process is very mysterious to me. And all I think of when I think PhD is like, okay, like if I get that, I can, you know, run research groups and, you know, it's a lot of research and it's a lot of struggle. So it definitely opens up my eyes and makes it seem like it's more realistic because the whole like, okay, am I 
like just struggling figuring it out. Like before this, I was like struggling over my physics homework. So it's it's great to see that how far you can go and it's nice to compare experiences. It'll give our listeners lots of hope, especially now that we're kind of reaching more of a younger generation, we're improving in that area. Yeah, and I think that's critical what you said, the struggle part. Um, you know, so I'm reading Grit by Angela Duckworth, who we had a um a Monday mood from. And, you know, the the studies show like, you know, the farther up you go into, you know, your studies and PhDs and JDs, et cetera, right? Like those people selectively, you know, that select group tends to have more of that grit. Um, you know, and you're building stamina, I feel like, with struggling. And, you know, what you're doing with your physics homework is not just the physics, you're building this skill to like just survive and like, you know, not give up and just keep pushing. And even if it like sucks, you know, like day to day that it's like a, it's a grind. Right. And, and I think that that, that continues Um, in some ways, I feel like, you know, the reason that um, Dr. Miller and I even started this is maybe, I mean, at least for me, I think, you know, I, I like to struggle. Like I, I like having challenges that I don't have you know, the skill set that matches to in some ways, like I just like the chaos of it, I think. And, and I think that's kind of that personality is perfect for like PhD work for science for, you know, that kind of, you know, pursuit because you, you enjoy the pain. (laughs) Well, that's a wrap for season one. We hope you've enjoyed all these stories from the inspiring guests we've had. In the off season, we will be planning for a deeper dive into topics surrounding the gender gap in STEM and we'll continue to promote equity. We will still release some bonus content, host events, blog, and continue the conversation on our social media. So keep in touch. Visit our website, thewisestwomen.com and look for us on LinkedIn and Instagram. Thanks for listening. I am Dr. Richa Chandra. And I'm Dr. Amber Miller.